0: Life might be pretty interesting if we turned over our families to our kids. We might learn some things. This morning I received an email. I woke up to it, first thing, from a family in Saudi Arabia. And in a week they're going to be listening to this, I believe, so hello. And um, they, they're they missionaries in Saudi Arabia, and so they don't have a church there. And somehow they're connected to our church, and so they listen to our podcast every week. And... Um, If you have been here at all for any length of time, you know my love for the nations. My love to see the gospel taken to the entire world, starting with Summit County and beyond that. Um, Many of you know I travel twice a year to Nepal and Mozambique and teach in schools there. I'm leaving March 1st for Nepal, actually. And so I appreciate you sending me, and I appreciate your prayers. But I received this email from this family, and they were just very grateful Every every week, as a family, they sit down and listen to the podcast, the entire family, and talk about, and this is, in a sense, providing them some level of church. And so they were very grateful, and I would just like to say thank you to you. You're the ones that make all this possible make it happen. So your ministry is around, happening around the world. Uh, we have lots of people that travel on short-term trips, and now we have a family that listens regularly. I look forward to meeting them someday, because they're part of our church, and I don't even know them yet. Well, the topic of uh, today, we're talking about families, faith and family. This is the last teaching part of the series. Next week is question and answer time with Mark and me. So as questions arise, write them down and bring them with you next week. And let's have a discussion as a church family about what might we have sparked, what ideas and questions might we have sparked throughout the series. The topic of men and women and families has been around, it's as old as the earth for Wherever we go, we have recorded history, we find people talking about it. We have humor, we have poetry, we have satire, we have treatises, we have books, we have, we have all kinds of ways that people are wrestling with this. We have laws relating to how we connect with our families and that sort of thing. So I have a couple of things to introduce this morning. One is from um, Jim Weese, the uh, master of jokes at Arnauer. So I'm blaming him right up front. A wife asks her husband, Could you please go shopping for me and buy one carton of milk? And if they have avocados, get six. A short time later, the husband comes back with six cartons of milk. The wife asks him, Why'd you buy six cartons of milk? And he answers, Well, they had avocados. <laughs> yeah, that's what Iron Hour does too. <laughs> My next quote is from Plutarch, <clears throat> born approximately 50 AD uh, BC, and I mean AD, excuse me, and he lived to about 120 AD. He was a procurator under the reign of Emperor Hadrian. He actually wrote quite a bit. He could criticize the king of old Persia for ruling all of his subjects except the one he ought to have ruled most of all his wife his wife. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover today. <laughs> wife, submit yourselves to your husbands. Let's get back to that. Uh, okay, in a minute. I love preaching on that passage in Ephesians. We're going to talk about it today because whenever I bring it up at a wedding, I love preaching at, on weddings, doing weddings with Ephesians. I usually have to talk the bride off the cliff Um, when I suggest we talk about that passage. And then when I explain what I want to do, then they're usually in and they enjoy it. Because the moment we read that, and I tell the the new bride and the new groom, because we'll be standing up there when they read it, when we read that, just watch the crowd. And here's what you'll see. You'll see half the crowd with a metaphorical eye roll, and you'll see half the crowd with a real eye roll. As somehow this passage is archaic and it's old, why submit yourselves to your husbands? And I want to address it today, have a conversation about what does it mean to live out our faith in our own families and marriages, and this is the place to start. This passage is often taken as the biblical rules or the biblical norm regarding marriage and family relations. Um, I might give you a different perspective on that today, what this passage is used for. Why is it in the scriptures? Why did Paul bring this up? What's he trying to do with it? To address the family, Paul is using a well-known genre. That's literary type. A type of literature like poetry is a genre. Story is a genre. Well, this is a type of genre well-known in the ancient world called household household code. Household code. It goes all the way back to Aristotle, as best we can tell. He was the one that originated it the first time around. And the household codes typically address three types of relationships. The husband and wife, father, children, master, slave. Now, the husband, the father, and the master are all the same person in the ancient Near Eastern world. So it's, it's addressed to, to the men who are running the families, basically. And uh, Paul follows the traditional format, but with some startling changes. He makes some changes that if you had lived at the time and you read what Paul wrote here, you would have been... I think flabbergasted you would have been (laughs) what and we're going to get into those in just a moment because you see for Aristotle the family was the smallest political unit the household codes were part of a political statement let me quote Aristotle every household is part of a state I think about that every household is part of a state And these relationships are part of the household, and the excellence of the part must have regard to that of the whole. In other words, the state is only as healthy as the family. Therefore, it's important that we control the family. So he created or developed this household code, which then passed down through the centuries and was very prevalent in the first century world. They were instructions on how society were to function, these household codes. And uh, so they start with the government. So if we were to have a conversation with about our own government and the three forms of government and check and balances that we have there, um, we would immediately go into the family. They'll be connected. You couldn't separate them because so goes the family, so goes the culture. We've actually lost that. We used to have that in our own culture, but we've lost that now. Those are very disconnected ideas. So for Aristotle, these were political statements on how how— The the family should function because he's most concerned about the state. So Paul is using a well-known genre to reframe household rules in very countercultural ways. Okay? We're going to talk through some of those significant changes that would have hit them right in the face. (coughs) What if we approach this passage from another angle? Rather than as a set of rules for how each family should function... Because Paul is moving away from that. What if we ask the question, what happens when we allow the gospel to enter into and transform our families? What happens? That's the heart and soul behind this passage in Ephesians 5. We're going to get to it. But first, let's talk about the cultural background. Let's talk about what was going on at the time and how women were viewed. Lots of quotes I could give you. I only selected a few. I'm going to start with Philo. He was born approximately 20 B.C., lived to about 50 A.D., so he was contemporary with Christ. He was a Jewish philosopher who wrote in in the land of Israel and around that whole region to demonstrate that the views of Judaism were a superior worldview. That was why he predominantly wrote. He wrote a lot, you know, uh, just a plethora of writings. If you want to read them, come in my office. Here's the first quote. For just as in their nature, men take precedence over women. What a way to start. Listen to this. For just as in their nature men take precedence over women, so also in families, they, these husbands, shall have the first share, inheriting property and filling the station of those who have died. Or, here's another one. Why did the serpent accost the woman and not the man? Hmm. The serpent, having formed his estimate of virtue, devised a treacherous stratagem against them for the sake of bringing mortality on them. But the woman was more accustomed to be deceived than the man. For his counsels, as well as his body, are of a masculine sort and competent to disentangle the notions of seduction. But the mind of the woman is more feminine, so that through her softness, she easily yields and is easily caught by the persuasions of falsehood. Or, Let no woman be seen to be going about publicly, to be going outside, except when it is necessary for her to go to the temple. Let her not go out at noon when the market is full, but after the greater part of the people have returned home. That's Philo. So for Philo, women should not be seen or heard. Either one. This is a worldview we're talking about here that Paul's writing in. Josephus, born around 37 AD, lived to about 100, he was a Jewish historian, so he was contemporary with Paul, the Apostle Paul. Here's what he had to say about it. But let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at the least, and those whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives, but let not the testimony of a woman be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Oh, they're not serious the levity of their sex or the law commands us also when we marry not to have regard to portion nor to take a woman by violence nor to persuade her deceitfully or knavishly but demand her in marriage of him who has the power to dispose of her it's a husband for this is what the scripture says a woman is inferior to her husband in all things we have no idea why he put that in there, because that's not in the scripture. But that's what he thought. Let her therefore be obedient to him, for God hath given authority to the husband. Or, let's move forward just a little bit. A couple Within the first 200 years of Christ, the Gnostic scriptures were revealed, one of which was the Gospel of Thomas. Many of you may have heard that title. It's very popular in classrooms for my students to ask, why don't we include the Gospel of Thomas in the Bible, five Gospels instead of four, since these are about the sayings of Jesus as well. Well, I'm going to read to you one of the sayings, and you tell me. You be the judge. Simon Peter said, Mary should leave us, for females are not worthy of life. Jesus said, see, I'm going to make her attract her to make her a male, so that she too might become a living spirit that resembles you males. For every female that makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you want that in your Bible? Uh, it's no longer an academic exercise when I read it, is it? No, we wouldn't want that in our Bible. It violates everything about our our sense of who Christ is and the way he treated women and what he thought. In classical Athens and traditional Roman families, the husband had authority over the household. So we have lots and lots of writings. Many authors, ancient writers, attributed women's inappropriate or their appropriate inferiority of rank in marriage uh, to an inferiority that was inherent in nature. Therefore, they were inferior not only in their families and in their marriages, but in society and culture as a general rule. They were viewed as emotionally weaker. They were viewed as unfit for battle. They viewed women as a curse to men. We have several authors writing about that. Women's moral weaknesses became the source for many proverbs throughout the ancient Near East. Husbands were encouraged to teach their young brides the appropriate way to relate in culture. Which included being submissive and subservient, and, no surprise, to attend to their husband's wishes. They were encouraged. Plutarch was one who encouraged it. Teach your wives what it means to submit, to serve, and to take care of your wishes. That's the context that Paul's writing in, in Ephesians 5. Now, when we read Ephesians 5, we're reading it from 21st century ethics looking backwards. And so you hear language like submit and all of that. Uh, the husband's ahead of the wife, and it, and it rattles your cage because it doesn't fit very well with your view of what's going on around you and your own dignity and self worth as women. And for men, what we think about women. And so if we step back in time, I've just given you a picture, and now we begin to look at what Paul is saying here and look at the subtle changes that he made which have great impact i think you'll be i think you'll enjoy it so the beginning of this discussion on wives submit yourselves to the husband actually is about a paragraph before if you want to follow along i'm in ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 this is the beginning of the whole section uh, often not connected by the way but it is be very careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or wastefulness, It's a waste of time. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the very first thing he says is to live not as unwise, but as wise. And just earlier in the chapter, he says, don't live like the Gentiles. They were not to live like their surrounding communities in Asia Minor, who would get drunk and behave foolishly. They weren't to live that way. Rather, they were to be filled by means of the Spirit with the very presence of God. A little technical explanation here. If you look in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Many of you, when I read that, will think, that must mean I have the Spirit inside of me. Well, first of all, this is addressed to the church. Second of all, there's a technical point here which needs to be clarified. The preposition, the English preposition with, has two different meanings. If I say fill a bucket with water or fill a bucket with a hose, two different things. Filling a bucket with a hose means the hose is the instrument that's doing the filling. If I say fill a bucket with water, water is the content that's being filled in the bucket. Okay, you understand the difference? This is talking about. Fill the bucket with the hose. In other words, let yourself be filled. Let the Spirit fill you. Let the Spirit fill you. Now, I'm not going to argue it today, but if you go back and look at the concept of filling and fullness in Ephesians, what he's talking about is the very presence of God. So this is a command. This is the overarching command among this whole passage. We as a church, he's saying, let the Spirit fill us with God's very presence. And what does that look like? Okay, now, second point. You may remember from your English classes, participles or gerunds, words that ends in I-N-G, right? Well, there's five of them right here that explain it. They give us this picture of what this means. The first one is in verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. We're speaking truth to each other. The second one is right after that, singing, what well, we did this morning. Third one is making melody in our hearts to the Lord. So, We are speaking to one another. This is talking about community relationship. We're singing together. We're making melody in our hearts. Verse 20, we're always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're submitting to one another. Mutual submission. Okay, pause. He just shook the apple cart. He just got their attention because we don't submit to one another. That's not the way it works in the Roman Empire. As a man, I have absolute authority over my wife, my children, and my slaves. They're my property. What? Submit? Mutually submit? This idea right here, which introduces this whole section, is groundbreaking. It's countercultural. I can't state that enough. It's so amazing. And nothing, no literature in the first century world talked about this. This is brand new. So then he takes this idea of submitting to one another, and he begins to flesh it out in the family. Because in a church setting, we can fool each other, can't we? I can fool you. You don't know if I'm depressed or happy. I can put on a good face. But when we get down into the family, you can't fool. I can't fool Nancy. You want to know what I'm like? S stands. In fact, my son's sitting right there. Ask him. He'll tell you. Ask him what I'm really like. That's what you'll find out. So he takes this last one, mutual submission, which is really the big idea of the whole passage, and he begins to work that down into the family unit so we can see what authenticity looks like. And he does it using a genre of household code. So he's changing the very structure of society at this point in time with this language. Because the language, I mean, the structure of the Roman world was despicable. It was men were in control, absolute authority. We have, we have writings where men had authority over their children to the point of taking their lives. They wanted to. Now, there were grounds for what, when they did that, but they had that kind of authority. The women had no legal standing. Neither did the children. So Paul was beginning to reframe the very essence of society with this language here, okay? When Paul uses this form, this genre, he's laying out a broader political vision for all of culture. He's introducing a new countercultural idea in the Hellenistic world on how humanity is to flourish, specifically as modeled by us, Christians, God's new community. Among whom he dwells. We are the spiritual temple. We are the household of God. God's very presence should be with us. And so we need to reframe the way we live in culture and society so that we make a statement to the world. The family thus becomes a concrete example of how the church should enjoy life together as a community. It starts with our families, we become the example. Because this was not present in the first century world. So this becomes clearer when we read his household code against the contemporary political positions. Okay? Um, Let me first of all take you just a brief survey through the passage. And I'll kind of put it in a context, political context. Submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, the first thing he does, he gives the triad of relationships. The the, uh, husband, wife, father, child. Uh, slave and master but he does something very unique he starts as is common so you have a a man who's in authority over a woman a child a slave but he takes the one who's under authority and addresses them first and the culture would have said got it makes sense of course you're supposed to submit you're supposed to obey but then he flips it on his head and addresses the one in authority and does amazing things he does that with all three so he starts with the one under authority and then he reverses it To show how this new gospel, this new paradigm, will tear apart all these old thoughts. So he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. We'll come back to that in a minute. Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Then he says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, pause. We'll come back to this. This is a startling statement. This is startling. Can't say it enough. Husbands were never asked to do this kind of stuff. It's not what they do. He goes on there, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. We have a small change here, which is significant. Because the household codes would read, children, obey your father. Because your father has authority over you. The mother has no legal standing and no authority over the children. If there was a discipline problem, she went to the father and the father dealt with it because she couldn't. And what did he just say? Children, obey your Parents, He includes both of them. So this is an act. This is a redemptive act to bring something new into culture, but at the same time, it's taking the wives and bringing them up equal in status and authority with the husband. Children, you obey both of them. And then he gives us the next startling statement. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. I can do what I want with my children, their property. No, you can't. No, you can't. Then he goes on um, in verse 5, Slaves obey earthly masters, and and, uh, masters treat your slaves fairly. So the first thing I want to say about this passage is this. This new community is a community that represents the justice of God. There's no place in our culture today where we would say that a man having absolute authority over a woman And over a child to the point of being able to kill them or a slave represents a fair and just, that's not human rights, is it? We would argue very differently with our ethics today. But back then, that's the way it was. So this represents a new idea within the first century world on what true justice looks like. Every person enjoys dignity. Every person, every person enjoys honor. As humans, every person fully participates in the flourishing of the community. So we see honor being given to every single member of the family, including slaves. And by the way, slaves were considered part of the family unit in the ancient world. In other household codes, the instructions were primarily for the ultimate comfort of the husband, and he used to control his family. That's the way other household codes were written. It's addressed to the men on how to control the family. No other household codes give dignity and honor to the rest of the household. But what does ours say? Okay, wives submit. Now, the idea of submission, prior to this, I think did have a lot of the idea of hierarchy. Okay, you see it in a military context and various other places. But Paul is beginning to reframe this idea when he introduces love, honor, mutual submission. And it begins to carry the idea of do what's in the best interest of the other person which is the whole message of Philippians 2. Put one another as more important than yourselves. So as he begins to address the role of women in a culture where they were under authority and considered property, he's saying, begin to do what's in the best interest of your husband. Okay? Because he is the head of the, uh, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, what does that mean, head? Well, the word head only has three basic meanings. There's a very few manuscripts that show it that it can be a position of authority, but it doesn't have to be. There's a few manuscripts that show it as the source of something like the headwaters of a river. Okay, The lake feeds the, the headwaters, and that's the primary way it's used. But then there's this whole vast amount of material where it has the idea of representation. That's the way we use it in our culture mostly. John Kerry is the, is the Secretary of State. He's the head of state. John Kerry has no authority over any of us, does he? No authority. But what he does is he represents us to the broader international community. That's what he does. So if the husband is the head of the wife, what that means is the husband has a responsibility to represent the wife well. Let me say it this way. You have a husband or you have somebody in position of power. As a husband was and somebody that's not in a position of power, if this person tries to take themselves up equal with the person in power, that looks like rebellion. If this person takes them down themselves down lower, then it looks like honor and glory. Okay? So let's face it, it is still, and we're making progress, maybe, but it's still a man's world. Just look at wages, look at look at occupations. Still a man's world. It's better than it was 30 years ago, but it's still a man's world. Husbands, you have a responsibility to represent your wife well, to help her become all that God wants her to become, not what you want her to become. There's a difference. But then he goes one step further. That's not enough. That's not even enough for Paul. What does he say? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's one thing that Christ did in his own best interest? Can't think of anything. It was 100% sacrifice for his bride, the church. So the very example he uses takes this idea to a universe beyond where the first century world had ever conceived. You want to have a godly marriage? Then husband, sacrifice for your wives in every way possible. Make them the most important. Help them to become what Christ wants them to become. You see it? Can you see how radical this would be in the first-century world? There's no language like this anywhere. We got it. Right here. We got it. Secondly, this new humanity is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, which is important because in in the first-century world, everybody was under Caesar they were under the lordship of caesar that was what they had to say by law caesar is lord so when paul comes along and says no jesus is lord he's now risking his life because he's no longer acknowledging caesar in the roman system a person's social rank determined his worth the closer you were to caesar the more valuable you were so the senate was far more powerful than the, proc- the procurators and the governors who were far more important than the people who were far more important than the peasants who were far more important than the slaves by the way, who were more important than the children. So there's a a rank and order here in the way this works. The closer you are to Caesar, the more value you have. For Paul, we are all equal because we are under the lordship of Christ. We stand the same distance, equal shoulder to shoulder, from Christ. Galatians 3.28, for in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We stand equal. This is still countercultural in our own culture today because we still have the viewpoint that the ancient Romans had. Would you rather your child be an engineer or a janitor? Don't we assign value that way today? Don't we try to shape our children to the higher educated, the more respected occupations? That is not what the bible is about in fact when you look at the whole discussion on the body metaphor and the gifts the speaking gifts that's mark and me hopefully we're good at it we're trained for it we love it we live for it what is our responsibility it is to show honor to what the scriptures refer to those who are more humble those who don't do well up here in front of you we get plenty of glory by the way thank you for that it's just overflowing from you to us our job is to show that glory and that honor to the people that are of humble circumstances those that are broken those that aren't gifted in the same way as we are up here that's what our job is because we are under the lordship of jesus christ what's more important about your child is not their occupation but their faithfulness that's what's more important Third, my third thought is that this new humanity conducts its relationships now out of love and honor. Contrary to Paul's culture, the husband is given the most sacrificial role as none of the others, wives children, slaves, had any choice or legal standing. They had no choice. And Paul is giving them choice. He's giving them dignity. So this love and honor begins to permeate this new community, and we look different than the world around us. The ancient Near East recognized, they weren't stupid. They recognized that people were fallen and badly motivated. They got that. Crimes, just like it, nothing new under the sun. But their answer was to control control them via power and manipulation. That was the answer in the ancient world. So husbands... Rule your wives well. Make sure they're under control. Don't let your children get away with those things. Control your slaves or get rid of them because culture is based on that. And this all gets turned around with Paul and the gospel message. Peter does the same thing, but we're in Paul today. It's now all based in love and honor, not power and manipulation. It's based on sacrifice. The concept of the husband as head, reveals that the person in power is to use that power on behalf of the people that they that they oversee, not against them. Do you see how radical this would be in the first century world? Is that making sense to you? It's an entirely new paradigm. <clears throat> Paul is revisiting the relationships um, given the first century, he's revising relationships given the first century cultural values. He's not trying to overthrow societal structures already in place like slavery. That's not his goal. He's trying to take the existing culture. First of all, he didn't have the authority or power. He's trying to take that existing culture and make a profound statement about the truth of the gospel by revamping the way they operate. He's working within the existing cultural framework. And he changes how these structures relate. He's shifting the very basis for the the culture. The very basis for it. And where you see Christianity represented in the world, you will see the basis of their culture has shifted. It's pretty clear. I would challenge you to go to the United Nations website, take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, And using their grading system, place all the countries that pass on human rights on one side and all the ones that fail on human rights on the other. And you will be startled that the ones that pass all have significant Christian influence. That's what you'll find. This is spectacular. It shifted the whole basis for the way we live together. Everyone is now treated with dignity. Everyone now has purpose. Everyone stands equally before the Lord. The message today is that as Christians, our relationships are to be radically different from those around us. It's to be genuine. It's to be authentic. We are to demonstrate to our own culture what it means to be filled by the Spirit with the presence of God And to treat one another with dignity. That's our responsibility as church and families. If it doesn't happen in the families, it's not going to happen in church. That's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. If our families are not healthy, our church is not healthy, and we lose our voice. So what does this mean for us? Where is our faith as a church? Just as the gospel transformed the first century relationships... So that they reflected the Trinity because the Trinity lives in mutual authority and respect and they share power and glory. There is no subordinationism within the Trinity. So just as the Trinity lives their lives in perfect harmony and submission to one another, putting each other first, that's what our families are to do. That's what our church is to do. We need to be willing to discuss this all of these things openly as a church. We need to get things out on the table. Let me bring up one example, divorce. It saddens me that we're comfortable with divorce. It saddens me that as a culture and as a church and as a local church, we're comfortable with it. Look at Ephesians 5.31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Our marriages model this one true living God to the world around us. But look at how he starts that, for this reason. What reason? Back up one verse. We are members of his body. We are members of his body. The context reveals that our marriages reflect how Christ cares for the church. The way we live our lives in marriage, it reflects this one true living God to the culture around us. Do not be deceived. Please, do not be deceived. Divorce, while sometimes the right thing to do, is always a reflection of the world and failure. Always. Don't be deceived. It is sometimes the right thing to do. I'll be the first to say that. But it's always a reflection of failure. And when the statistics in the church, which models the world, which is true today of the church in America, when our own statistics of failure model the world's statistics, how is that redemptive in culture? How is that redemptive? Divorce is one of those areas where we're losing our voice. We're no longer modeling this one true living God. They didn't get divorced. You see how serious this is? This is countercultural in the first century world, and it has great significance today. We need to be willing to engage our culture in attractive and winsome ways so that we can guide people to a better and more healthy thinking about the way they relate together and about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I tell you something, if I understand this correctly, if you divorce, you lose your you lose your testimony. You lose your voice. Can you get it back? Sure you can. Absolutely. That's what redemption is all about. That's just one example. Don't be deceived. It is imperative that we as a church we help our families and our marriages grow so that we actually are different. We don't talk about it. We are different. So the world looks at us and says, "I want what you have. How did you get such a great marriage?" Doesn't mean we don't have mistakes, doesn't mean our kids don't fail. Doesn't mean we don't fail. Nancy and I have failed in our marriage. You know, doesn't mean that at all. It means that it's genuine, it's authentic, and the world looks at us and says, "You have something I don't have." Tell us about this God that you serve. So it's important that we protect our marriages and families. If your marriage, your family is in trouble, please, please, step up to the plate and do something about it. Don't let it continue. Don't be the frog in the frying pan syndrome. If your marriage is in trouble, step up to the plate and do something about it. Be responsible. We have tons of resources in our own church. We have tons of resources outside of our church that are willing to help because this is important. So if I communicated to you how countercultural and new these ideas were, don't read them from 21st century ethics and look backwards and think, oh, and I have to submit to my husband. No, 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 it's the opposite. Look back and understand that uh, that in a broken world where you had no freedom or rights, Paul is just revising that whole thing because what's most important is we represent God to the world. Our church is only as healthy as your marriages and families are. Let's pray. Father, we <coughs> delight in in being called your children. an honor, Lord, that is indescribable how deeply you love us. Father, I pray for our marriages and our families. I pray that you would strengthen them, Lord. I pray that you would make them healthy. Lord, where there is brokenness and hurt, I pray that you would bring redemption and healing and new life. Father, for those of us that have gone through that and have experienced that redemption and that healing and that new life, I pray that you would continue to place us in relationships with those that we can assure them of your grace and your love and your mercy. Thank you for taking a terrible culture, terrible culture based on uh, manipulation and power and turning it into one based on love, honor, sacrifice, mutual submission, caring for one another. Help us to be that kind of church. And Lord, increase our own testimony within our own culture. In your son's name we pray. Amen.